part of our time together this evening. It is a, a great joy to be back in the book of uh, Genesis again this evening. Hope um, many of you are, have been tracking with us as we've been working our way through up to this point, and we've reached this chapter uh, 41. And as Jared said, it's a long one. So that's why we decided to, to split the reading up. Um, and what I'm going to do first of all, just before we turn to consider it together, is I'm going to read uh, from the rest of this chapter, picking up where Neville left us in uh, verse 37. So if you've got a Bible with you, do follow along. It should also be on the screen up there. Genesis 41, verse 37. This uh, proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphinath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of those seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Well, throughout the centuries, God's 
people have been reading this book of Genesis, this chapter even, in all kinds of circumstances and situations. They've read it while rejoicing. They've read it while mourning. They've read it while enjoying God's blessing. And they've read it while seemingly not enjoying that same blessing. And of course, the same remains true for us today, even this evening as we read it. But here's the thing, in whatever situation, in whatever place God's people have read this book through history and even today, the same driving message just keeps ringing out loud and clear. God, the creator God, the maker of all things is at work in history. And he is at work in particular in looking to redeem a people for himself. And he's at work to bless, to bless his people and have his people bring blessing to the world as a whole. And in that way, Genesis 41, the chapter that we've just finished reading there, I think sums up and is representative of the whole of this book. It picks up on so many of those same themes. And it speaks to us again this evening, however we're feeling, whatever situation we find ourselves in. And it reminds us, it says to us, whether you're feeling this to be the case or not, there is a good, sovereign God, who is above everything, who is above all that we see here in this chapter, and who is likewise above your life, above all that we see going on in the world around us. God is at work. He has been at work, and he will continue to be at work, because we, are, we know that he is the same God who we see at work in this kind of chapter. And he has continued, hasn't he, to bring blessing, just like we're going to see in this chapter, to millions upon millions through that work. And in that way, here I think is is where this chapter lands for us this evening, what what it's here to do for us as we respond to it. I think this chapter is here this evening to give us renewed confidence and renewed trust in our God Because he is at work, and he is at work for our good. So, let's get into the specifics here. There's a, it's a long one, isn't it? (laughs) You'll uh, please forgive me if there's a particular phrase or something that you were looking for me to get into and we skip over it. Hopefully, we'll make our way through the main chunks of it. But as we look at, at these 57 verses, let's just start by seeing what we see here in terms of God's intervention. Now, as soon as I say that, I I know that sounds as though, well, God hasn't been in the picture up to this point. Uh, Of course, that that isn't the case. Um, From chapter 40, we we saw God at work, if you were with us a couple weeks ago. But I use that word here, God's intervention, because by the end of chapter 40, If you remember where we left off, from a worldly perspective, we were again wondering what hope there was for Joseph. We were wondering, weren't we? How is God going to be at work? Is he going to be at work? Here's Joseph, forgotten, left languishing in this pit, in this prison, seemingly now with no hope of escape as the cupbearer has forgotten him. 
And I think then this chapter points us to how even in this kind of situation, God can intervene. God does and can continue to do his work. In fact, we're going to see how with God at work, Joseph goes in this chapter in just 24 hours or less from being in this pit to being on a throne, from being a prisoner to being a prince. So let's see that together now. First off, uh, we see this, I think, through Pharaoh's dreams, don't we? There are many ways God could have intervened in Joseph's situation, his ongoing wait at the end of chapter 40. But here in chapter 41, verses 1 to 7, we find out that God chooses to do this, to work, by giving Pharaoh dreams, and in particular, dreams that trouble him. Again, now we don't have time to go into all the detail of the content of these dreams that we see here, but suffice to say that the stark contrasts, did you notice that as we were reading? The contrast in the dream that the writer keeps bringing up again and again, they make it clear, I think, why Pharaoh is so troubled. Look in, look in verse 2. The first seven cows we read are attractive and plump, while the cows that come after these, verse 3, are ugly and thin. And these eat up the attractive, plump cows. Then again, in verse 5, what do we read of? Seven plump and good ears of grain, contrasted with these seven thin, blighted ears. And again, the thin ones swallow up the plump, full ones. No wonder, with these vivid imageries uh, running through Pharaoh's brain, he, when he wakes up, he is troubled, isn't he? Verse 8. And I think, again, we can see in this God at work. And we can see in this God at work intervening according to his good timing. Why has Joseph been left in the pit for another two years, as we find out that he has been in verse 1? So that he could be there on hand to ultimately interpret these dreams just as he'd interpreted the cupbearers and bakers' dreams in the chapter before. But we, before we uh, start, we see another reason, I think, in verse 8, why I think we can see these dreams as God at work. Not just the product of Pharaoh's overactive imagination, stress caused by having to lead a nation. See, in verse 8, Pharaoh, troubled, sends for all these magicians, doesn't he? Magicians of Egypt and the wise men. Notice again the repetition, the all-encompassing, all. Everyone comes. But we read that despite Pharaoh telling them these dreams, there was none who could interpret them. All. But none could help. And the point is this. Unlike other dreams, which do often seem stem from our kind of subconscious fears or emotions, perhaps, these were not those kind of dreams. These were God-given dreams dreams. Because the reality is that these wise men and these magicians, if these dreams had simply been some kind of overflow of, of Pharaoh's anxiety about something coming up for him or a broken down relationship or whatever it might have been, the reality is that these magicians and wise men, they could have interpreted them. But instead we see here that these are God given dreams. Because we know and we read later on that these are dreams about the future. And of course, who is the only one who knows the future? It is God. 
God has the future in his hands, and here he is revealing the future to Pharaoh. And so ultimately, no one apart from God can interpret these dreams. And through all of this, we can then also see God at work, I think, in verses 9 to 13, can't we? Reminding the cupbearer about Joseph. In verse 9 there, it seems that the cupbearer, prompted by these dreams and the fact that no one is able to help Pharaoh, is genuinely sorry about chapter 40, verse 23, that we read last time, that he had not remembered Joseph but had forgotten him. Look what he says there in verse 9 to Pharaoh. I remember my offenses today. And then he recounts, doesn't he, this detailed story of how Joseph had interpreted his and the baker's dreams accurately for them. And again, all of this reminds us, doesn't it, that while the cupbearer we read in in the last chapter had forgotten about Joseph, God had not forgotten about Joseph. And he would even choose, ironically, now to show that to be the case by reminding the very person who had forgotten about Joseph about Joseph. So hearing all that Joseph did for the cupbearer, verse 14, Pharaoh sends and calls for Joseph, doesn't he? Remember, this is what we thought and and assumed would happen at the end of chapter 40. But here we are two years later, and finally now we see Joseph being brought out of the pit. He comes, he's shaved as was the custom for Egyptian men, and he comes in before Pharaoh. And listen to Pharaoh's words in verse 15. He says to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And here, Joseph is quick to correct him. In many ways, what we read next is a pretty bold move on on account of Joseph, isn't it? Correcting someone like a pharaoh who could, just as quickly as he'd brought him out of the pit, simply thrown him back in. But Joseph is clear, isn't he? And again, as he says this, he's reminding us of this this truth too. None of this is about Joseph. This is all about God. Look at what Joseph says there, verse 16. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, an answer that will give him peace, his troubled spirit, peace, clarity about what these dreams are about. And that's exactly then what happens, isn't it? As Joseph's faith in God is realized, as God enables him to interpret these dreams, Now again, verses 17 to 24 are a pretty full retelling of the dreams that we've already heard about. So we won't go through them all again. But there's a notable addition. And I guess this is probably, when push comes to shove, also something that that mostly troubled Pharaoh. This is in verse 21. He, he, He says that after the thin, ugly cows had eaten up their plump and attractive counterparts, they were still as ugly as at the beginning. What was this all about? Well, Joseph is about to tell Pharaoh. From verses 25 to 32, Joseph, through God's enabling, explains it. And again, notice how in verse 25, he begins with God. It is 
As we began by saying this evening, God, who has given these dreams to Pharaoh to reveal to him what he is about to do. And the details are as follows from verse 26 onwards. The seven good cows and the seven good ears of grain. Well, they're these seven years of great plenty that Joseph talks about in verse 29. And the seven lean and ugly cows and the seven empty ears of grain that came after. Well, they're these seven years of famine. A famine that, again, verse 29, will cause the plenty to be forgotten, to be unknown. A severe famine that will consume the land. And then just as he began with God, so Joseph finishes again with God. Look at verse 32. Joseph says, And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Implicit in all of this again is this. God is working. And what God says goes. What God says is going to happen is going to happen. Because that is the kind of God that he is. Not some man-made idol, but the creator God who holds all of time in his hands. I guess that truth, even as Joseph said it, must have both challenged and encouraged him, right? If this is who God is, above it all, then why had he left him in the pit, in the prison for so long? Why had he allowed him even to be sold into slavery in the first place, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife? That's the challenge. But then also the encouragement. What God says will happen, will happen. And so remembering his character, remembering God's promises to Joseph and more widely to his people, Joseph could have confidence that his future is still safe and secure in God's hands. And of course, thinking about God's sovereignty in this way also challenges and encourages us, doesn't it, this evening? What about our challenges and difficulties that we face? The tricky situations. We could say even pit-like situations and circumstances that some of us have found ourselves in in the past, maybe even find ourselves in now or could find ourselves in the future. Why does God allow that to happen? Why wouldn't he work to lift us out of that situation right now? And of course, we don't know. Often, we never know here on earth. But we can at least see here in Joseph's story that it isn't that God has forgotten us. Or that those things are happening to us. Because for, for some, by some way, these things are outside of God's control. No, he is still there with Joseph, and he will use this all for his own purposes. And the encouragement from that, of course, is that then we can have that same confidence, that our future is also safe in God's hands. He is with us in it all. And it isn't that the things that happen to us happen to us because they are out of God's control. No, there is nothing that can prevent our loving, good God from fulfilling his good purposes in us as well. Now, because of God's sovereignty and goodness, as Paul would later say in the book of Romans, there is nothing, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, there is nothing in this world that can separate us 
from the love of Christ. Because of God's sovereignty, because what God says will happen, will happen, Joseph could have confidence in him. And so again can we this evening. And I think we can maybe see then there's something of this confidence coming out in Joseph in verses 33 onwards, if you look there with me. See, not only does Joseph interpret these dreams to Pharaoh and point him to the God behind them all, he then also goes on to suggest an appropriate response, a way forward given all that God has revealed. What does he suggest? Well, that Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man to set over the land of Egypt, who could ensure that one-fifth of the produce of the land over the next seven plentiful years would be stored and saved up to be used when those seven years of famine came. So that as Joseph says in verse 36, ultimately the land would not perish through the famine. Now again, I think we have to see God intervening here. God at work in what we see after this. Because by all accounts, there is no immediate reason for Pharaoh to necessarily listen to Joseph here, is there? After all, It's going to take at least eight, nine, ten years, you'd think, for Pharaoh to be sure that Joseph's interpretation is correct, right, if you think about it? Wait for those seven years of plenty to happen, and then maybe a year, or maybe a two, because the first year was a coincidence, maybe third year. But what do we see here? We see here God prompting Pharaoh to immediately listen to Joseph. And not only that, to then also exalt him to be that one to be set over the entire land. Look at what we read there in verse 37, because they're incredible words when we stop and think about it. Verse 37, this proposal from Joseph pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this. There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. This is the culmination of God's intervention here, isn't it, in this chapter. God prompts Pharaoh to listen to Joseph, and more than that, to put him essentially in charge of the whole of the land of Egypt. Just think of Joseph and what he must have been thinking at this point. Where was he even that very morning? He was still in the pit, wasn't he? Probably just attending to those prisoners, just as he had been for those two years and and more. And now, well, look with me at the ten ways that we read of Pharaoh making it clear, the writer making it clear of the exaltation of Joseph. Verses 40 and onwards. Just, just follow along with me. The first reason, verse 40, we read, he shall be over Pharaoh's house. Number two, verse 40, again, all Pharaoh's people shall order themselves at Joseph's command. Verse 40, again, number three, only as regards the throne will Pharaoh be greater. Number four, verse 41, he is set over all the land of Egypt. Number five, verse 42, Pharaoh gives him this signet ring from his hand. Number six, and he clothes him in these garments of fine linen. Verse uh, 43, number seven, Pharaoh makes him ride in his second chariot. Number eight, the people call out before Joseph something like, bow the knee. 
Number nine, again, summarizing all of this, Joseph is set over all the land of Egypt. And as if that wasn't enough, number 10, Pharaoh makes it clear the extent of all this new power that Joseph has. Verse 44, he says, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, Joseph, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. What an intervention. What a transformation we see going on here. What a turnaround from the pit to the throne in just a few hours. From prisoner to prince. Joseph, his life has been turned around in just a matter of hours. God has been at work. But here then is the question. If God has been at work like this, why? What is God's intention behind this kind of dramatic intervention? And that then, I think, is what we see in the rest of this chapter. God's intention in doing what he's just done, in exalting Joseph like this. I think we see God's intention work itself out here in wider circles in these final verses. First of all, there's no doubt God works in this way, doesn't he, to bless Joseph. We've already seen this just in that extent of exaltation that Joseph has received from Pharaoh. And we see this again in verse 45. If you look with me, he has this honor, doesn't he, of being given in marriage to this important priest's daughter. And we then see the blessing that results in this in verses 50 and 52, if you look with me. As we see that form, this, this, uh, this blessing come in the form of these two sons who are born to Joseph. Remember here, importantly, in the Old Testament, children, they're often synonymous, aren't they, with God's blessing. They're a sign and a demonstration of God's blessing. In fact, back in Genesis 17, what had God said to Abraham about Sarah? He said, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And so here we see the same blessing. And Joseph is quick to credit it again to God, isn't he, in these verses. It is his work in his life. Look with me at verses 51 and 52. He names his firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget my hardship. And his second son, Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of all my affliction. Joseph has, despite his hardships, despite his suffering, despite the injustice he has faced, he has kept on faithfully serving his God, hasn't he, and looking to him. We've seen this again in this chapter, haven't we? Even before Pharaoh, he is still boldly speaking about his God, the one who holds all of time in his hands. And here I think we see a clear blessing that Joseph receives as a result of that, as a result of the fact that he has held fast to his God. And of course, as we see this, we, I think, today can also be encouraged. And remember that Joseph's story here mirrors the story of all of God's people right through history and even today. For some of God's people, even in hardship and difficulties, God will work here on earth to bring them out of those, to bless them, to exalt them, as it were. 
He's absolutely able to do that. And in our difficulties, we should look for him to do that. Our passage has reminded us of his ability to. But as we see this, here then is also what we know to be true for all of God's people. Ultimately, all of us will know this kind of full and final blessing that Joseph knows here. When we too will be exalted, lifted up, when we too will rise to reign with our God forever. What picture do we find in the final chapter of the final book in the Bible, telling us of what's to come? That of God's people, exalted, just like Joseph here. We read Revelation 22, verse 5, And night will be no more. God's people, his servants, will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Seeing this pattern of God's blessing Joseph, exalting him, and like we've seen today, remembering that what God says will happen will happen. We can look at those words from Revelation 22, verse 5, and allow them to remind us, to encourage us, that our God is one who we can have confidence in, who we can keep putting our trust in, even in the hard times, because we know, don't we, that just as... For Joseph, that pit was not the end of his story. So for us too, those hard times, that suffering will not be the end. We will also be lifted up and no blessing, blessing far beyond anything that we could ever imagine as we rise to reign with our God forever. But we see from these final verses too, that God's intention to bless goes even further than this personal blessing of Joseph. He's also been at work in this chapter to bless and save Egypt as a whole through Joseph. In verses 47 to 49, we read that because of Joseph's wisdom and counsel that they carried out during these seven plentiful years, so much food is stored away. It's kind of comical here, isn't it? So much food is stored away, verse 49, in such abundance, like the sands of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. God's blessing in these years of abundance. And God's blessing is then shown to flow through Joseph and his wise counsel. We see in verse 53, then, the need for this abundance of what we just read there, because the famine strikes, doesn't it? But this doesn't spell the end for the Egyptians. No, in verse 54, because of what Joseph has done, we read that there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. Ongoing provision for Egypt through Joseph. And we see this continue, verse 55. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So, verse 56, when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. 
Only because of God's work in exalting Joseph, in putting him in this position, are the Egyptians saved from what would otherwise have been a catastrophic famine. A famine that could, it seems, have even wiped out the entire nation. And yet God has put someone in place here, Joseph, to ensure that that wouldn't happen. To ensure that the Egyptians would be saved. And not only the Egyptians, because we see this circle go wider, don't we? Look with me how this chapter closes there in verse 57. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was so severe over all the earth. Here we see, I think, this widest intention of all that God has been doing in this chapter, his work, his intention to bless and save the entire world through Joseph. God has exalted Joseph to this place of honor in Egypt so that through him, people from all over the world from Egypt and beyond, could find blessing and salvation. We see this, God's use of Joseph, so clearly in the specifics of the text here, if you look with me. First, to verse 55. What does Pharaoh say to all the Egyptians when they cry out for bread? He says, go to Joseph. What he says to you do. Go to To Joseph. It's through Joseph that you'll get the bread that you need in amidst this kind of famine. And again, we see this in these two seemingly innocuous but crucial words in verse 57 too that we could simply pass over, but so important. Verse 57, where do all the earth come to to find grain? They come to Egypt, but even more specifically, they come to Joseph. The writer is making this clear, isn't he? He is slamming this point home to us as we hear this account. Joseph, Joseph is the channel here through which God is going to work to bless and save. If God had worked otherwise than we've seen him work in this chapter, imagine, imagine he hadn't worked at all and he just left Joseph in the prison. Or imagine maybe that he'd brought Joseph out of the prison those two years earlier and and he'd disappeared off the scene then. What would the result have been? Well, total devastation, death, as the severe famine not only consumes the land, but probably also the people who live there as well. And yet God had worked. He had exalted and lifted up Joseph to be that man the once seeming forgotten prisoner, now the prince who would save the world. Do you remember that verse that we read a bit earlier from Genesis 17, what God had said to Sarah? I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. With these words in mind and remembering this promise that the whole of Genesis has been looking to, that one day the offspring would come who would crush the head of the serpent. It's hard not to see Joseph lifted up here as the one who could potentially be that promised seed. 
Here he is, made out, isn't he, like this prince-like figure, this royal offspring promised to Sarah, and one through whom many nations are finding blessing and salvation. So is Joseph this promised seed, this royal offspring, the one who will crush the serpent's head? Well, of course, we find out as the story continues that he isn't. In fact, it will be ultimately through Judah, his brother, and his seed that this promised offspring will one day come. But there is no doubt that as we read this, what we are meant to see here is a clear foreshadowing, a raising of expectation of just what that future promised offspring will do. For those reading this chapter when it was first written, wherever that might have been, in the promised land, in exile. This chapter is a reminder that if God could work like this in the past, intervene like this to bring about blessing and salvation to his people, to the world as a whole, he certainly can do the same again. And he will do the same again because, of course, that's what Genesis promises he will do. So what could they do? Just keep looking to God, trusting in him, trusting that he would make a way that this seed would one day come. And of course, we today know for sure that God did make that way, that that promised seed did come, that promised royal offspring. And in many ways, this story of Joseph, we see so much of Jesus, don't we? Foreshadowed, presented to us. Jesus, too, had found himself unjustly treated, beaten, mocked, condemned to the pit, the pit for him, that tomb that his dead body was laid in. And as day one turned to day two, the question, was it that Jesus had been forgotten, abandoned by his father, just as Joseph had seemingly been forgotten between these chapters. Well, no, because as the sun rose on day three, the sun rose on day three. As God, in the pattern of Joseph, again, raises him up, exalts him, lifts him from the pit, ultimately then also exalting him as he ascends to heaven, to the highest throne. But do you remember, just as every knee bowed before Joseph, in this account, so one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And because of Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, through the one on whom the Spirit of God rested, Jesus, just as he did, he did with Joseph, God has again made a way to bless and save the world people even to the furthest ends of the earth. In this account, it was this severe famine, wasn't it, that the writer time and time again points us to, just how serious it is. We're left in no doubt of the severity. We're not left in no doubt the situation, what it would have been like apart from God's work in sending Joseph, using him as this channel of blessing and salvation providing the bread that the people were crying out for. Well, so it was for Jesus. He came to offer blessing 
and salvation, but from an even more desperate situation, into an even more desperate situation than a severe famine. God sent the promised royal seed, Jesus, into a world entrenched in sin, in darkness, to offer forgiveness and salvation from that sin that would otherwise ultimately cut them off from God forever. See, just as the people here in this chapter cried out for bread and Pharaoh said this to them, go to Joseph, so we today are meant to hear similarly. Not go to Joseph though, but go to Jesus. Go to Jesus, the bread of life. Because as Jesus himself said when he was on earth, whoever feeds on this bread, on his body, they will live forever. They will never go hungry again. See, just as food in this chapter could not be found apart from through Joseph, so too today, forgiveness, right relationship with God, the God of blessing and of salvation cannot be found anywhere apart from Jesus. There is no other name through which we are saved than the name of Jesus. So hearing this, here's where I want us to leave us this evening with that call. Go to Jesus. If you haven't already done that in your life, I just say go to Jesus. He is this exalted, promised royal seed who came to meet your greatest need and met it in full. And if you have already gone to Jesus, run to him, let me just say this to you. Keep on doing that. And as you go to Jesus, as you remember all the work that he has done in your life, You can rejoice in God's past work. You can know that you are safe in his hand. He has worked to bless you and to give you all that you need. And of course, we can remember that that same God who has worked through Christ in you in the past, he is continuing to work in you. You are today safe in his hands. He still today is also above your every single breath. He is continuing his work. Go on clinging to him, trusting in Christ this week, whatever it holds. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your work. In Christ. Lord, we thank you for this picture, such a clear picture of Jesus that we find in Joseph here. Lord, we thank you for how you used Joseph to bring blessing and salvation to the world. And Lord, we thank you ultimately for how that points us to Christ. We thank you that he came, that again today we also can know blessing and find salvation, finding all that we need in him. 
Lord, help us to remember that as we see your sovereign hand at work in Joseph's life, as we see your sovereign hand at work in Christ's life and his resurrection bringing us hope and life, we thank you that we can remember that your same sovereign hand is above our lives today too. And that if we are in Christ, we have all that we need, that we are safe and secure. And Lord, that ultimately we can look forward to that moment when we will rise to reign with you forever. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to close by singing this song, Man of Sorrows. What a name. It picks up on so much of what we've seen here, of what Jesus went through to to bring us salvation. We'll sing that chorus, the same again and again. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Let's stand together and sing. you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.